Good morning, church. Um, it's my wonderful privilege to close out our Easter uh, series and week. Um, it's been a fantastic week so far. If uh, the feedback doesn't come right, I'll just use that other mic. Okay? Is it fine? Okay. Um, Bryce kicked us off last week's Sunday with uh, the triumphal entry, and the series is called Triumphant. And Jesus finally publicly declared that he was the king. For most of the journey, they were trying to make him king, and he was avoiding any kind of um, political advancement. He would run when he would do a miracle, um, and someone would see and believe that he was the king. He would often say to them, uh, uh, don't tell anyone what's happened. He was hiding in the shadows for the right moment. And now, on Sunday, one week ago, he rides in and declares that he is the triumphant king of Israel. But he would not be triumphant in the way that the people were expecting. They expected a king on a war horse, a king to overthrow the Roman Empire, to re-establish Israel as the most powerful nation on the earth as they once were under David and Solomon. Instead, he comes on a humble donkey, and his kingdom is established in the hearts of those who believe. Those who have saving faith that he is who he claims to be, and that what he did on the cross, he did for them. This is how his kingdom grows. And if they were listening and they were paying attention, they would have known, because he described the kingdom to them. He says this kingdom is like a mustard seed. It is like leaven. It starts small. And it grows slowly. But it spreads everywhere. And for the last 2,000 years, no one can stop what the gospel is doing. It has spread to the four corners of the earth. And it is being established. He is establishing his kingdom in the hearts of those who believe. Many of you today experience that. He is the triumphant king. And the triumphal entry proclaims his coming triumph in this week to define all weeks. Everything that happens to you and me who believe comes to us because of what happens on Friday and what happens on Sunday, 2,000 years ago. And before Jesus can be the triumphant king, in our hearts, he first has to overcome what already reigns there. We have two masters who have reigned over us from the beginning. The first master is sin. There have been an estimated 117 billion people who have ever lived. Now, I don't know how they get to that number. There's 8 billion people living today. Uh, and whether it's that much or in the tens of billions, we have 8 billion right now. That means we are into the tens of billions that have ever lived. Every single one of them has been mastered by sin, except one. 
every single human has been mastered by sin except one, Jesus. Ever since Adam, sin has reigned. And I want you to remember, Adam wasn't created with sin. He was created sinless. He and Eve had every opportunity to live righteously and faithfully to God, but they are examples to us that even uh, created sinless, we can only hold that position temporarily. Every human born in sin since has had sin reign over them from birth to death, which is the second master. 117 billion people have lived, and 117 billion people minus two have died. Enoch and Elijah were taken. If you're hoping for an Enoch and Elijah experience, your odds are one in 50 billion. It's next to nothing. Sin has a perfect record over the human race, bar Jesus. And death has next to perfect. These have reigned over us with total domination, And if Christ is to triumph, then our view of his triumph can't just be small. It can't be the kind of triumph the Jews were expecting, some political territory, one of the smallest political territories, uh, geographically speaking. It has to be much bigger than that. God's looking much higher than that when he comes to triumph. He wants to reign in our hearts. But there are some formidable obstacles that must first be overcome. Obstacles that were not overcome until Jesus came. This is what Jesus was speaking about in Luke chapter 11, verse 21 and 22, often misquoted and misused. But he says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Satan is the strong man Sin is his armor, and we, our souls, are the spoil. He has completely ruled and possessed us from the beginning. And now Jesus comes riding on a donkey. Righteousness and salvation are with him. And he has come to battle for our souls at the cross. He will battle sin on Friday, an as yet undefeated enemy. And when he wins, the armor is removed. And the spoils are divided as the victor decides. To the victor go the spoils. Jesus took every single sin from Adam to you and me, and every sin that's coming. And he put it all on himself at the cross. And he won. Sin has no more power. When people go to hell now, they don't go to hell because they've sinned. They go to hell because they've rejected the one who overcame sin by his blood on the cross. After Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God's wrath towards sin, his anger towards the human race who have rebelled against him, um, his judgment for our rebellion, it's satisfied through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus has paid for all of it. He's made an atonement. He has triumphed over sin in his death. 
and everyone who trusts in Jesus' atoning work on the cross will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus triumphed over the first master on Friday. And you do nothing to earn salvation, friends. You only need to look at the sun. That's what Matt was preaching about on Friday. You only need to look at the cross. Look and believe, and you will be healed forever, forgiven forever. Someone stronger than the strong man has come. He has defeated the strong man. He has disarmed him, and the spoils are divided. This morning, we're looking at the second master, death. The resurrection is God's emphatic way of confirming Christ's victory on the cross. While Jesus lies dead, a question remains. Who won that fight? Did sin win? Because sin reigns in death. So if Jesus lies dead, it could be argued sin has won the battle. Did sin win? No, my friends. Heaven roars as the sun rises and his resurrection is confirmation that sin has truly been defeated. Not just sin, but now death as well. He is the firstborn from the dead, according to Colossians 1.18, which means that he is the first to rise to an eternal body. Lazarus has just died. Lazarus has just been raised to an earthly body. Lazarus will die again. He might have had another week, another month, another year, another 10 years. But there will come a day, and has come a day, Lazarus has died again and been buried in the same tomb Jesus called him out of. His body lies there, an earthly body. The first one to be raised to an eternal body is Jesus. And his body sits next to the right hand of the Father right now. It is a physical body. You can touch it. We're going to see that in the text we read this morning. You can feel it. It also does not, it is not bound by any physical laws. We can see that in the text we're going to read in a moment as well. And everyone who believes in him will be raised just as he was, with a body just like he has. Death is forever defeated in the resurrection of the Son, the true strong man, Lord of all creation. Listen to Paul's description of him in Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Paul says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We sang that this morning. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. This morning we're reading John's account of the resurrection. It's lengthy. I want to encourage you, if you brought your Bibles, to uh, open up and read with me. It's John chapter 20. I do have it on the screen, but as I preach this morning, we're going to engage this text in various spaces, and if I've done a good job with my slides, it'll be helpful to you, and if I haven't, you'll have the Bible open in front of you to double-check me, and I encourage you to do that. Um, In John chapter 20, it says this. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, this is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. John's the first one to believe it's resurrection. The others think the body's been moved. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. It's the first example of him not being bound by physical laws, entering into a locked room, He says, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We'll get to that. 
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, and not with them when Jesus and was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. And never lasts eight days. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, this is important to John that we get this. It's happened twice now. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And in case you think he's just a spirit floating around, he says to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your uh, hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, Thomas is the last one to believe. My Lord and my God. Which is different to Peter saying, you are the Christ. Thomas has a higher uh, belief. It's personal, deeply personal. My Lord and my God. Not just Lord and God, but my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you, speaking to you, may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I see three um, parts in this text. The first point is that the resurrection for John is factual. He spends a lot of time going to great extent trying to show that this resurrection happened. And I'm going to help you see what evidence he uses in this first portion of the text. Many today do not believe the resurrection is factual. Paul says if there is no resurrection, we are to be um, pitied above all people. If the resurrection has not happened and you find yourself in church and trying to uh, follow Jesus and love Jesus, but you somehow don't believe there's a resurrection, then there's no point to anything that we're doing. John wants you to know it's a fact, and many de deny the fact. It's easier to deny facts when we weren't present to witness them. Most of the people I listen to denying facts don't have the privilege of being there 2,000 years ago. John was. John saw this with his own eyes. He was the first to believe. He didn't need to see Jesus' body walking around to believe. He believed the moment he saw that tomb empty, he believed. But an empty tomb is not enough for everyone. It was not enough to convince Peter. Peter was confused. It was not enough to convince Mary. Mary assumed that the body had been moved. I think that's the most logical explanation. The other Gospels record that there's at least five women that visited that tomb. So John's first piece of evidence is multiple witnesses. Sometimes people like to say, no, an eyewitness account isn't uh, valuable because... Um, our eyes uh, 
aren't trustworthy we, and our memories fail us. Okay? And in the case of one witness, I would say yes. It's still a powerful piece of evidence and we still use it in court. But the argument against one witness is uh, being unreliable is much stronger than multiple witnesses. All seeing the same thing and all saying the same thing. And we've got in John's writings, Mary and then Peter and John. In the other writings, it's Mary, Joanna, and I forget all the others. There's about five of them. If you're interested in uh, research, go read the other Gospels and see if you can find the other five. I think Salome. So we've got multiple people who have seen at different times this empty tomb. And on a side note... Not everyone here is apologetically minded. I am, so I apologize. I'm going to do some apologetics with you just for a second, whether you like it or not. If we are making this story up, like some people claim we are, if you are making a story up, you have the freedom to create facts. It's a powerful thing. I'm a storyteller. Okay? To create facts, it's a powerful thing. right? So... If you are going to create facts, if you're not bound to truth, okay, if you're going to create a narrative, then create the strongest narrative you can to convince people. Well, there's a problem with this narrative. The problem is this. Women are unreliable witnesses. Now, I'm not saying they are today. I'm saying this is what the viewpoint was back then, okay? People do not listen when women say, we saw this tomb empty. If we are going to make facts up, surely the people that should find the fake empty tomb should be men. It's easy to make it up if it's not real. You just change the gender. The problem is, we are bound to the truth. We can't make the facts up. And so what happened was, and God chose it to be this way, and I think it validates women, he wanted women to be the first ones to find the empty tomb. And even though it hurts the narrative for the thinking person, it helps the narrative because it's authentic. Because we're not making stuff up. We're just saying the thing that actually happened. You might prefer it to sound different. You might be more convinced if it came a different way. And in those times, they would have said, I might believe if there were men that saw first. But unfortunately, we are bound to the truth. And so all we can share is the facts. I think that's a compelling piece of evidence that the woman saw him first. Mary calls Peter and John, and they also witnessed the empty tomb. So if, even if we're struggling with gender over here, it doesn't really make sense. Men also saw it. Mary thinks the body has been moved, and she's weeping. Her weeping turns to joy when she sees Jesus. An empty tomb is not enough for everyone, but our witnesses didn't just get an empty tomb. They saw Jesus with their own eyes. So I want to take you through these facts from John one more time before we move on, because it's not the most important part of what I'm going to say this morning. But John wants us to believe in the fact of the resurrection. He offers us multiple witnesses. He allows them to be women, though that hurts his narrative. For the thinking person, it helps. 
Why not change the facts? Because the truth is important to John. He saw an empty tomb, and it was enough for him to believe. Others had to see Jesus to believe. Jesus appears to John and others, so we have eyewitness testimony of an historical fact from someone who cares about presenting the facts accurately. My second point this morning is this resurrection is not just factual, but it's very practical in its application to us. In the middle portion of John chapter 20, there's four things that this resurrection provides for the disciples. They all begin with P, so it should be easier for you to remember, easier for me too. Peace, purpose, power, proclamation. I want to start with peace. So in John um, 20 verse 19... It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. There's a couple things over here. It's interesting. They've seen the empty tomb. One of them already believes Jesus is raised, and yet... Where we find them is hiding in a room behind locked doors. They are very afraid. Because the Jews have killed Jesus. And they believe that the next step is to kill them. So they are hiding out in fear of the Jews carrying on their mission to wipe out Jesus and his followers. And they're afraid. And the first thing the resurrection offers us in a practical way, Jesus says, the first thing he says to them when they all see him is, peace be with you. And what brings peace? He shows them his hands and his side. I am raised. I am alive. Now, that's peace to you. You don't have to be afraid. Everything that was promised is true. Everything that was said about me is true. Everything that was prophesied that would happen has happened. And now that means to you who believe in me, peace be with you. And friends, that encourages me because I am a person like you. I struggle with fear and anxiety like you. And the greatest help to me as I navigate this world and sometimes find myself inside locked rooms to protect myself is to sit at the feet of Jesus in prayer and sense his nearness and his presence and remember that the promises are true. And he is my Prince of Peace. This last week, I've had to walk a road with families that have lost parents Two parents gone, three kids in a home. And you know what my hope is for them? Jesus. The oldest is 18. The youngest is 10. No one to look after them. Do I know what the answers are? No. But Jesus is who he said he is. And he is peace. And when I sat with them on Friday night and prayed with them, I believed that they are going to be okay. I don't know how that looks. I know God's going to look after them. Peace be with you because he has been raised from the dead.
The second thing Jesus says to them when they're in that room is he says in verse uh, 21, he gives them purpose. He says to them, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. So we need to hear peace more than once and you'll hear it a third time. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And this resurrection isn't just to settle our fears. It gives us wonderful purpose. Because the mission that Jesus was sent on is still happening as we speak today. And the way it moves, the way this gospel moves, is through those who believe. Because you believe, God is able to use your life in ways you would not even realize it's happening to bring someone else to to faith. Someone else can watch your life and see you and see Jesus, and they can believe. I believe that's happened to every one of us, even if we don't know about it. And the mission is the same. You are wondering why you're here? You're here because God wants to extend his kingdom in the hearts of men, just as he has done in your heart, and he wants to use you wherever you are. He wants to use you in your workplace. He wants to use you in your family. He wants to use you in your social circles. Every single part about you matters, even the stuff you love to do. Do you know how I ministered when I was in Oman? Around PlayStation? So some of the teenagers go, oh, wow. I enjoyed PlayStation. Some of these uh, young men were enjoying PlayStation. It was a lot easier to hang out with them for four hours in the evening, let me tell you, playing some FIFA than it would have been if we were knitting, okay? <laughs> and we were doing something we enjoyed, but I'm waiting for every conversation, every moment to bring in Jesus, and it happens. It can happen. Doing the things we enjoy. I would sit in the, the I don't want to say bars, because they don't sell alcohol there, but they're coffee shops, they're evening coffee shops. They love to play soccer on the screens. And there I am sitting, cheering on Liverpool with Liverpool Muslims. And the things I love matter because I have a connection point with people that love those things. But actually, the biggest thing that matters here is I know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. So as you paddle, I'm looking at Dave Alderman. And as you go for your runs and as you do the stuff you love to do, this is the wonderful thing for purpose for all of us is God is able to use you right where you are and how he made you to share your faith with other people around you. That's why you're still here, if you're wondering why you're still here. As Jesus was sent, so Jesus is sending you. Did God send him with real purpose? Amen. And Jesus is giving that exact same purpose to you and me. And we're winning. We're winning. The gospel is moving. It's spreading. And he's going to come back again and soon. It might even happen today. I don't think there's much more left to do. And whatever's left to be done, I think God can get it done really quickly. Are you ready? Are you doing the purpose that he is sending you for? The third thing we see in the text is the resurrection brings power. In John 20, 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gets poured out at Pentecost in a powerful way, but they already have received the Spirit 
the moment they see Jesus has resurrected from his body, he breathes on them. Very similar to Genesis where God breathes life into Adam. Now Jesus is breathing spiritual life into those that follow him and believe in him. You and me also have received the Spirit. So we don't just have this purpose, which you might hear and go, that sounds massive, like I'm not quite sure I can play a role in that the way you're describing. And then straight away after that, Jesus then says, as I send you, now he's giving you the power to go and what he's sending you to do. And every single one of you who believes is sitting here. You have received the Spirit. Do we need more of the Spirit? Amen. Should we be praying to be filled by the Spirit? Should we be praying for God to pour out His Spirit upon us? Yes, please. I'm not saying we don't need more. We definitely need more. But everyone who believes and has seen Jesus, the resurrection offers this to you. It's this power in uh, the Spirit given to you. And you can ask for more, and you should. And then the last practical application of the resurrection for these disciples and for us is this very strange scripture that I think Catholics and others may be misapplied. Proclamation. You might wonder, what the heck does John 20, 23 have to do with proclamation? And I probably don't have enough time to do it justice. I've lost my phone, so before I preach all day. Oh, damn. Doing well. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold from any, it is withheld. Do you really have the power to forgive someone their sins? No. The only way sins are forgiven is through the cross. That's how they are forgiven. So when we go to a human being for um, and we pay a penance or whatever we're doing and we want them to speak some kind of forgiveness over us. I think that's a, a misapplication of this text. And before you think I'm like trying to figure this stuff out on my own, Michael Eaton was very helpful over here. Because I've also wondered, what, is, what does this text really mean? And, and Eaton says, it's a proclamation of the gospel. So for example, if I say to Ali, Ali, have you... Uh, Repented of your sins, and have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation? You're forgiven. I'm simply declaring and proclaiming the gospel. And I'm not going to pick on someone here. I'm going to let's imagine a person, and I say to them, have you repented of your sins, and have you trusted in Jesus for your salvation? Actually, that has happened. So sometimes um, parents bring uh, uh, children saying, I don't know if they're ready to be baptized. And so I'll sit with them, and they're 10, 11, 12, and I'll say, um, you know, uh, do you, have you received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And they go, no. Okay, so, sorry, you're not ready to be baptized, which is also me saying, you're not yet forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean it won't happen. I think it will happen for many of these children, because I think God's faithful to work salvation out through our testimonies and the way we live our lives. And I'm trusting God with you for my own daughter to respond to the gospel. But... That's what's happening there when I say you're not ready to be baptized. You have not yet received Christ. You're not yet forgiven. It's not me that's stopping that thing from happening. It's me just proclaiming the gospel and the way the gospel works. 
And Christians, when you say to someone, your sins are forgiven because they have given their lives to Christ, you're proclaiming the gospel. You're saying what is true. Your sins are forgiven. When you chat with a friend or a family member who is kind of on the journey and you're trying to, I think it's important that they, you know, because they hear God loves me. They also need to hear you're not forgiven until you receive Christ. Because the only way to get forgiveness for sins is to bow your knee at the cross and acknowledge that you can't do anything. Because if you ask people, as Matt said on Friday, they will often say, no, I'm good. It's not true. No, I'm doing this and this and this. Well, then you're in trouble. No, but I'm better than this person because I do. No, it doesn't matter. You need to hear when you're thinking that you are not forgiven. Because forgiveness comes by emptying yourself and your, of your works and coming to a point of realizing I can do nothing. And I'm no better than anyone else. And suddenly you can look at the cross and see Jesus because now it makes sense. That's why he did it. Because I couldn't do anything. So he did it for me. And when you see that, it can happen in a moment. You can move from being unforgiven to forgiven. And that brings us to the third and final point. The purpose of the resurrection is that we would believe. John places the story of Jesus and Thomas right before he talks about the purpose of this book. And he's using Jesus and Thomas as an example of what happens to everyone who comes to faith. And the purpose of all of the writings. And I think a lot of us can relate to Thomas, known as the doubting Thomas. Every single person here probably at some stage has wrestled with doubt over, over faith. And some of you might still be wrestling with doubt. That's why you aren't yet believers. You've got lots of questions. And maybe rightfully so. I don't know what's happened to you in your life. But I know that painful things happen to a lot of us. And there's big questions over God and pain that stop people from believing and responding to the gospel. And many people can relate to Thomas. Some of you might be sitting there saying, Mark, some of the stuff you're saying sounds nice, but I need to see it. I need to see it. I can't believe without seeing it. I'll never believe without seeing it. And Jesus' message to Thomas is his message to you. I love it. He doesn't leave Thomas in his unbelief. He doesn't say to Thomas, no, that's not good enough. You need to, um, you need to just believe without seeing me. He answers Thomas's questions and Thomas's challenge. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. And Jesus says, then don't be disbelieving. Believe. And some of you might be going, Mark, if Jesus stood in front of me and gave me the same opportunity to touch his uh, marks in his hands, to touch his side, then I would believe what John's writing to you next is for you. The next verse says this. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Many thousands and thousands and thousands of people have heard the gospel since Jesus ascended to heaven. And just like Thomas can say, my Lord and my God. This scripture has proved true. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What is the purpose of this book? Why is John writing this? He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There is power in this gospel this morning, friends. It has power through words to convince you. If you had said to me as a logical thinking person when I first came to faith at age 14 that something happened 2,000 years ago and I'm going to just have to believe it to be saved, before I believed it, I would have said to you, I will never believe. Just like a Thomas. I'm not an idiot. I'm not a moron. I need evidence. I need to be convinced. But something happened one day. Something happened that surprised me. I suddenly got it that I can't be good enough to get there to heaven. I thought I could before that, and I tried really hard. And then one day, while someone was preaching, they said, you're all exactly the same. The worst of you in your mind to the best of you in your mind, you're all in exactly the same boat. And when he said it, it was the first time I believed it. Before that, I would have gone, no, 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 I can be better than you. I can work harder. I can do this. Give me a chance. But that day, for the first time, I got the penny dropped. Mark, you are done for. There's nothing you can do to be saved. And then he lifted up Jesus. And I looked. And I believed. And I had heard Jesus' name before. And I had heard the story about the cross before. But this was the first time I understood he did that for me. And I moved in one moment from unbelief to belief. It happened not because I saw him with my eyes or touched him with my hands. It happened because I heard the gospel and I understood it and I believed. And I want to tell you right now, I didn't figure anything out. God revealed himself to me. God Remove the veil from my eyes so I could see. He could do that this morning for you. As I'm walking here, you you don't have the privilege of seeing what I'm seeing, but I'm telling you right now, Christians, and I want you to pray with me because we're at the key part here. There are people in this room who don't yet believe. That can change in a moment. Why? Because I'm preaching well? No, because God is here. And when God reveals who he is to people, suddenly people who thought it would never happen... This is what John's saying. These things are written so that you would believe. And Jesus is saying to you, don't go on unbelieving. Believe. I've got two men I want to close with. Very famous. The first one's Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is regarded as the prince of preachers. Bryce gets a smile on his face at the mention of his name. Bryce reads all of Charles. If you want to learn more about Charles, just uh, have a conversation with Bryce. Charles Spurgeon was walking on a very cold winter's day, an unbeliever. And he walked into a church for warmth. British, 
English winter, and it was freezing, and the church was warm, so he walked in, and he sat at the back. And the preacher didn't rock up because the snow was too bad. So imagine that happened this morning. Imagine Matt, me, and Bryce didn't rock up. But there's hundreds of you here, and suddenly one of you goes, well, I read this this morning. And a guy gets up, takes his Bible to the front, and reads one verse of Scripture. And the verse was Isaiah 45. I think it was 23. Should have checked this. But it says, look unto, uh, look unto me for salvation. That's all he had. Some of you are going, Mark, we wish that's all you had this morning. But look unto me for salvation. And then he looked at Charles Spurgeon sitting there. And he knew he was new. Okay? And he pointed at him and he said, My boy, look at Jesus. And Spurgeon says, I didn't hear a single word he said after that. He kept preaching. But I never left the thought of, look at Jesus and be saved. And that day, off that one line, the greatest preacher since Jesus possibly, believed. And he gives his life to Christ off a look. He looked. Matt asked you to look on Friday. Not just hear it and glance and move on, but he said, look. That's what they did with the serpent in the wilderness. You looked and you were healed. It's enough to just look at Jesus to be saved. It's an incredible thought. This is why even as some of you look at me with some blank stares, I'm, going, I'm still going to lift him up because if you look, you might see today, and that won't be because I've done a good job, it's because God is at work when we lift up Jesus and people can get saved. And that's how Charles Spurgeon got saved, off an unprepared sermon of one verse. And it was just look, and you'll believe. Some of you don't believe because you don't look. I'm asking you to look. The second person I want to speak to you about is and I have one minute. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis grew up a, um, in a devout Christian family in Ireland. He uh, was taught things of the gospel, believed the gospel in the beginning. I can't say whether he was saved or not, but a good Christian boy. And then his mom got sick. And at the age of nine, he was praying for God to heal his mom, and God didn't listen. And his mom died. One of the greatest minds of our time started wrestling with this unanswered prayer that God wouldn't listen to him. And then he grew up to be a teenager, and his atheism was hard set by the time he was in college, in universities. He had come to believe that it isn't true. None of it is true. The pain that he had gone through and many other experiences, that's where he landed. But he had an incredible mind. And what I'm about to say to you, I can't prove is real. I read, it in, I read it in preparation and I still struggle to believe this even as I say this. He writes a book. One of the books he wrote is on literature 
And in preparation for writing the book, it takes him 18 years to write the book, Brilliant Mind. 18 years to write the book. You know, one of the activities he did in preparation for writing that book, he read every single book in English. Every single one. That exists. Okay? I, I read maybe one or two books a year. This guy took every book that exists, and to write this book just on literature, he said to himself, for homework, I'm going to read all English literature. And he did it. And in so doing, what happens, he comes across Christian authors. G.K. Chesterton is one of them. And he starts to have wrestlings with his atheism over the logic and the um, arguments put forward by these strong believers. He starts to wrestle. Then he meets people who also cause him to wrestle with his atheism. One of those people is J.R.R. Tolkien. And the Lord of the Rings writer sits with C.S. Lewis one night. They talk all night. And faith comes up. But he's fighting. And some of you are fighting this morning. You're here actually because somewhere deep down you do want answers. And even Paul, when he gets saved, um, Jesus says to him, why do you kick against the goats? That day Paul got saved, the, God had been working on Paul for a long time. Why do you resist what I'm doing inside of you? And C.S. Lewis stays up all night with J.R.R. Tolkien, and he says, this is his, this is, I love this testimony. He says, the next day, I was thinking about what we had spoken about. And I got in the car. When I got in the car to go to the zoo, that was the daily activity, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. When I got out of the car, I did. Some of you came here this morning, you don't believe. And that's okay. You've got good questions. I think you should ask them. I think you should sit around with people and talk all night if they're willing to have you and ask every question you've got. But that's what happened to me. That's what happened to C.S. Lewis. That's what happened to Charles Spurgeon. There came a moment where we moved from unbelief to belief. And Jesus was raised. And John writes about it so that you will believe. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this yearly reminder every Easter, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday of the defining moments for all of our lives, for all of eternity. We have sung songs declaring your resurrection this morning. Lord. You are alive. See his hands. See his feet, touch his scars, and believe. He is risen. He is risen. He's alive. Lord, the fact that many, many in this room believe, and they believe deeply, they believe in a way that they, it's changed their whole lives, 
is evidence that your gospel continues to advance and you continue to change the hearts and minds of men and women with just one look. In just one moment. And we want to pray now as a church for those sitting amongst us who are still asking. And we pray, Lord, Lord, may they hear your word this morning. May they understand who you are and what you have done and that you've done it for them. And may they believe. We pray that you'd remove the blindfolds, that they would see you clearly, and that when seeing you, Lord, they would run to you and they would hold to you and that they would be forgiven of all of their sins because of what you've done on the cross for them 2,000 years ago. I pray, Lord, that as we go from this place, that we would go remembering the practical applications of this resurrection, Lord, that your peace would reign in our hearts, that we would go with purpose, in power, proclaiming your gospel. And that even this afternoon, maybe we're going to have opportunities around a lunch table. Lord, may we boldly share the truth about who you are, trusting that as we lift Jesus up, people might look and they might believe. In Jesus' name, amen. I was noticed as, as Mark was praying, we have a 6 p.m. service and a 10 p.m. service. There will be baptisms and testimonies. Now, I just have a sense, maybe there's somebody that you can still invite today to come. Maybe the 10 is a bit soon, but there's going to be a 6 p.m. service. Bring them along. They are not only going to God willing hear the message, but they're going to hear the living testimony of those that have met Jesus. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. If the stars amaze you